recognized the song. That was good. <laughs> uh, praise the Lord. Okay, if you would please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. We are continuing in our study. We just started last week, so if this is your first week, you haven't missed much. We talked about the book of Philemon, first of all, that 24, 25 little verse book back in the back of the New Testament. And uh, the study is on Philemon, Titus, and 2 Timothy. So we're going in that order backwards in how it's printed in your Bible. But uh, we're going to spend a few weeks here in the book of Titus. And it is a, a little book packed full of lots of, of biblical truth. And so we want to get that into your minds and into your hearts today. And so we're thrilled to be able to do that. Um, do you have a handout? Does everybody have a handout? Should have got those. Oh, we two down front, Keith, for a handout. John, thank you for passing those out for us this morning and greeting everybody. And um, thrilled to be able to do it. So last week, um, we said that our new series, Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, was something new for us. We never had studied that before. And so we're getting into new territory that we haven't done in, in ABF. And so we're excited about that. And we talked about uh, Philemon and Onesimus, the runaway slave, and how forgiveness, Paul urged Philemon to give forgiveness to this runaway slave, and most likely that happened, though we really don't read the end of the story. Paul was writing from prison at that time, encouraging another man to forgive a, a, a former slave who was converted and now wanted to bring them together in unity again as sort of a, a working family, if you will. And so that was called a prison epistle. As we tr transition out of Philemon and get into the book of Titus, Paul was eventually released from Rome and from his house in-house imprisonment and was free to be able to travel around. And so that's exactly what he did. And he subsequently visited. He visited Ephesus, where he left Timothy to supervise the churches there. He's up in the Macedonia area, northern Greece, and then came down to southern Greece, and then eventually came down into this area uh, that we know as Crete, the island down here at the bottom. And so... Timothy's up there. He leaves uh, Timothy. He's going to leave him in Corinth. Comes or in Ephesus, Ephesus. Excuse me. Paul writes to Timothy. Writes First Timothy. Comes down here. Writes Titus in about A.D. 66 before he's imprisoned a second time. So we're now in the time between Paul's two imprisonments, where he's out and about and he's uh, he is ministering to um, people where he had been on his other missionary journeys. And so that's where we pick up the story in the book of Titus. And so just by way of background, I'll just give you that for your handout there. Titus is called a pastoral epistle. Why would that be? Because Titus and Timothy were both pastors that he was leaving behind to care for the churches in Crete and up in all of Ephesus and, and the upper area of Macedonia. And so um, it's, it was what these books are all about to Titus and First and Second Timothy contain principles to pastors for the pastoral care of their churches. And so we call them pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. So they're not prison epistles anymore because Paul's out of prison. So Paul, again, leaves Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete, to oversee the churches. That's what these men were doing. They were overseeing uh, the churches in the areas that Paul was leaving them. There were multiple churches in the Ephesus area, the church at Ephesus, but many others as well. And so he was overseeing those, those group of churches. Most notably was the church at Ephesus. Um, and then third, Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy and one to Titus. And he was giving these men to direction to organize 
and to manage these new churches. Now, with the beginning of the church class, not just anyone could be called to be a pastor, as, as you may know, or shepherd the church that Jesus said, I will build my church, but I want the right candidates to be able to be there to be used to build the church. And so they had to be first men. And you know, that seems obvious to us as independent Baptists, but there's a lot of denominations that do ordain females as well. We believe that is contrary to the Scriptures. If a man desire the office of a bishop, of an overseer, of a pastor, he desires a good work. He must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Manage his children. So it's clear in Scriptures that, that uh, it was called for men to be the pastors, the presbyters, the bishops, the leaders, the elders of the churches that Jesus would start and call just because of the headship position that he called men to be in the home as well as leading his church. So they had to be saved men. They had to be men of strong Christian character so they could be an example to the flock over which the Holy Spirit made them an overseer. That's what, that's what Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20. He said that exactly, that you feed the flock, that you shepherd the flock over which God has made you an overseer. Pastors, do your job to oversee the sheep. Love them, care for them, nurture them, feed them with the Word of God. And, and can I say to you as one of the pastors here, just an associate, it is a joy to be able to serve the Lord here at Valley Forge Baptist. It is a joy to be able to teach this class. Thank you for coming out today. We get to open the Word of God with no threat of someone coming in. And class, aren't you glad that we do have our freedoms today where we can open the Word of God and listen and learn that we might be strengthened in our faith? Are you glad about that this morning? Amen. We don't want to take it for granted, do we? And we can easily because there's so many countries and nations out there where they just don't have this freedom. We have the Word of God in our language in multiple versions. And not only that, we're here and we can open the Word of God because we believe in the truth of the Word of God. So as long as Valley Forge is here, and I hope as long as I'm here, certainly what I will do personally is strive to teach the Word of God because it is the Word of God. And it is powerful. It's quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's our privilege to do that. And so we don't want to take that lightly. So I want you to know, as one of your pastors here, we take that seriously, that we get to open the Word of God and teach it. And obviously, you, you think it's important because you got up early on a Sunday morning, once again, before 9 o'clock to be here. Some of you right around 9 o'clock. <laughs> Just a couple of you, a few minutes after. No big deal. <laughs> We're happy everybody's here. That's great. To be able to hear the Word of God. And so we, we, have, we share that unity together as believers in Christ. So the lesson today, you see the title, is on godly leadership. It focuses just on that topic. That's what Paul's going to talk about as he gets to his protege Timothy, or excuse me, here, Titus, to talk to Titus about what it's like to oversee this group of churches down in, in uh, Crete where we need to get them set up because there's a lot of believers down there and they're not organized yet into churches and we need to set up elders of those churches so that Christ can build his church like he said. And so Paul's taking that charge seriously. So um, the, the title of, Paul says in verse 1, if you notice, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, we could just read through that real quick and think, oh yeah, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, that's no small matter in Jesus' day and in the first century uh, church day. Uh, that's no small title either. See, of the men in the church, Paul wrote 
or lists the office of apostle as first. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, he says, And those in the church first off first apostles, then prophets, then preachers and teachers, and so on and so forth. He's giving a list of men. But in the hierarchy of those men, there's the apostles. Why is that? Because we don't have apostles today. No pastors or apostles because they had a specific qualification. To be called an apostle, you, are, you generally had to have the following criteria. And very select few were able to have this. And so Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's saying, hey, I have a pedigree here. I'm on the inner, inner circle. Not boasting because he says, yes, I'm, I'm among the chiefest of the apostles. I'm not behind any, yet I am nothing myself. And so he wore the title, he had that title, and he used his power and authority influence, but he used it in a humble way. He used it in a gentle way. He didn't lord it over people like say, you need to listen to me because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. No, he, he was an apostle of humility. And he, he was an apostle over other pastors and getting them started. And so what specifically, class, you might want to ask, I'm sure you were thinking of it, right? What's the qualification of an apostle? Were you thinking that? Two of you were. Okay, well, let's, let me give you that. <laughs> what was an apostle? All right, here they are. We won't spend a lot of time, but just for your interest, he had to see the Lord. That was one. He had to see the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can look up these verses. We won't spend the time looking at all that, but they had to see the Lord. Did the apostle Paul see the Lord? Remember on the road to Damascus, the Lord shown himself to Paul. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. He had a direct interaction with... What's that? It was a voice, but, but he had relation with the Lord in talking to him. So in, in that way, it was a, a developmental relationship and an interpersonal relationship with Christ. Um, second, he had to be chosen by the Lord. Um, Acts chapter 9, verse 15 talks about Paul... Jesus said to Paul, I have chosen you to be my faithful servant. Third, he had to be commissioned by the Lord to take the gospel to the world. And also there in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in um, Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, it says specifically that about the apostle Paul. Jesus says, but the Lord said unto him, meaning Paul, go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. God specifically called Paul into this ministry of apostleship. And then number four, they had to have miracle working power. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 talks about Paul who did miracles among the people. And so he had all the criteria. Paul was definitely an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he gives sort of his pedigree right from the outset here. He clearly met all the qualifications and he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ as one born out of due time. He wasn't with all the 12 disciples, but years later it was when God called Paul to be that apostle. But he said that he's not behind even the chiefest of the apostles, though he himself was nothing, as I mentioned earlier. So, Paul goes on to say here in his introductory comments, by the way, these first four verses make up one sentence in the Greek, so it's a long greeting. We might just say, Dear Joe, and that would be our greeting. Here's Paul's greeting to Timothy. It goes from verse 1 to verse 4. 
He finally gets down to verse 4, to Titus, my own son after the common faith. And so it's a long introduction. It's a long sentence with powerful truths that he's writing to acknowledge the truth taught to him directly from God. And the primary truth was that man could have the hope of eternal life. Let's now read verse 2. I'll finish verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. I am acknowledging that what God gives me is truth and I'm communicating it to you. Then he says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Class, what does that make you think of? Just that verse alone. Let's pick it apart for just a second. What is Paul saying in verse 2? What do you take from it? Get some interaction here this morning. What's he saying? In the hope of eternal life. Well, to me, it's saying that before the foundation of the world, God had his salvation plan already um, set in order. Set, yes. Yeah. Do you get that? Can you see that? That's the second part of the verse, right? Which God, which is committed unto me according, I'm sorry, in the hope of eternal life, that God that cannot lie promised before the world began. He says three truths in there. Number one is the hope of eternal life. Class, he's not saying when, when we have eternal life, well, I hope it comes to pass. I'm really not sure if it's going to be real, but, but, I hope, but I hope that I hope that Jesus comes back and I hope I can get to heaven. No, the hope there is, that's not the description of the hope. That word there, hope, means that I am reassured it's just waiting for the day. The, the, the strong anticipation of what I know is going to come true, it's right around the corner. And I'm, I'm hoping, waiting for that moment to happen. Not if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. In the hope of eternal life. It's guaranteed. It's assured. That's what that word hope means there. Paul is telling them. So it's not just a, a wishful thinking. It's a firm belief. It's, it's assured a longing for something that's going to come to pass in the future. That's the hope of eternal life. And so it gives us the encouragement to endure. To stay with it. To not quit. Jesus said, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. What class? Finish it for me. I have overcome the world. Do you believe that this morning? Even with something that, like that that's going on with, with what's happened with Mitch. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have trials. There's going to be stuff that we don't like or stuff that we have to face that's difficult. But be of good cheer. Don't let your circumstances dominate you so that you lose this assurance that Jesus is your hope of eternal life. He's coming back. He's coming. It's absolutely 100% guaranteed. Keep looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Do that. That's what Paul is saying here. The hope of eternal life. It's guaranteed. And so that he's overcome the world. Jesus Christ has done that. And so we are to endure for the sake of Jesus Christ. It will all be worth it in the end. So basically Paul is saying, hang on and trust me. And don't just like make it, well, I'm just, uh, bless God, I'm hanging on to the very end. Lord, you coming back tomorrow? 
No, he wants us to thrive and prosper and be about his business and work for the work of God because it's a great work. It's a powerful work. And, and he wants us all to be busy about his work. It gives us purpose in life. It gives us meaning. And we can draw great energy and power from being able to serve God. And so we want to continue on uh, in that vein. We have a glorious resurrection awaiting us, class. And that was the promise that was made by God, he says, who cannot lie even before the foundation of the world. Because Jesus declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he came from God, the God has, it is defined as truth. I am the way, the truth. God here, who cannot lie, he's not playing some big game on people saying, oh yeah, no, this salvation, that's not real. That's just, that's just a joke. No way. God who is truth, and Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, it's, it's absolutely true. And he says that God who cannot lie promised before the world began. God will not break his promise. It's against his nature class. It's against his character. God who cannot lie. Lies are the descriptor of the enemy, of the devil. He's the father of lies. Jesus is the author and the embodiment of truth. And so to think that God would somehow lie would equate him with the devil. And Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie because it goes against his very nature. Sanctify them by thy truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And so we can believe it right from the outset. Paul is making this known to Timothy. Timothy, you young, or sorry, not Timothy, Titus. Titus, you young protege in the faith, I want you to make sure that you communicate this to these new pastors that are going to be starting these churches about what they are to, supposed to be thinking and doing in their lives. And so God determined, just like Tim said, the last part of verse 2, um, God determined beforehand, even before the world was created, that He would offer salvation to mankind. Well, if he created imperfect, why would he have to plan for salvation? Because God also knew in advance that mankind would fall short. That he would sin. So even before he even created man, he had a plan in place that knowing man would fall, God would provide a redeemer, a savior to be able to save men from their sin so that he could ultimately have eternal life with Christ in heaven. And so, in just a few words, Paul is telling Titus that very thing. Salvation is this wonderful gift. What a powerful God we have and serve that He would even plan this before the world began. Yes, Tim? Just a thought, Pastor, just a little overwhelming to me for a second there. That even before God created man, that He had this plan that He knew would send His Son, that you and I would just say, well, then, you know what, I'm not going to create this man because I'm going to have to sacrifice my own son. Mm. But he loved us before we were even known. Yes. It's amazing love, and, and it's neat, Tim, that you think of it in that way, that God was saying, yes, you know, and my son Jesus, that you will be willing to go to the cross when I do create man. Yes, Lord, I am willing. I will go. I will please you. I will honor your command. And so Jesus would be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, knowing that that was going to happen. 
one day. And so he still chose and said, yes, I will be obedient to the will of the Father to be able to make the sacrifice for man and become one of him so that I could go and die and even be rejected by his own heavenly Father. Imagine that, knowing that that would one day happen. Just amazing, the love of God, the unconditional love of God for his people. Paul is sort of setting that up here right from the beginning in the first few verses. So God would reveal his wonderful word through preaching. That's what he says there. But, verse 3, But hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, just think about those verses for a minute. Uh, The message from God was committed to Paul by the very commandment of God our Savior. We always think of Jesus our Savior, right? It says God our Savior. Uh, Notice the little insert of the God our Savior there in verse 3, and then in verse 4, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. So all the Godhead is involved in salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God's involved in creation. Jesus Christ Himself is the one who went to the cross to die for us. When you read in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says it was the Spirit of God who raised up Jesus from the dead. The Spirit was involved in salvation. So the Godhead is all involved in salvation. And Paul is making that doctrine known right from the very beginning as well. God our Savior, Christ our Savior, though it doesn't say the Spirit of God here, we know the Spirit was involved in salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all active in bringing mankind to Jesus Christ and ultimately to the saving of our souls. So, the Bible says, He that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of His. You know, that's what justifies us, class, just briefly, When we are saved, we receive Jesus Christ into our heart as Lord and Savior. What ultimately saves us? It is the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us and dwelling in us and giving His righteousness inside of us. We call that the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He comes to live inside. Now God looks down from heaven. He looks into every one of our souls. And he says, do you still sin? Yes, everybody still sins. We're not going to give up our sin until we get to heaven and have a glorified body. But... Can we still get to heaven when we still sin? God says, yes, you can. Why? Because you have my spirit living in you, which is the down payment of the full salvation you will get when you get to heaven and you get a glorified body and you're all brand new, that you're free even from the very presence of sin. So God at salvation, at justification said... I will save you and put my spirit in you. And when my spirit comes to live inside of you, I declare you righteous and I will change my view of you. I no longer see you as a sinner. I see you as a holy, righteous, adopted child of God who sometimes sins, but your nature as a sinner I no longer see. I see the righteousness of my son. I see the Holy Spirit living in you. That's what gives us eternal life. So if we have not the spirit of Christ in us, we are none of his. That's salvation, is the Holy Spirit living in us, affirming our salvation, giving us new life, causing God to change His view of us because He lives inside of us. Aren't you glad of that? It's wonderful. It's wonderful truth. And Paul is just laying that out here at the beginning of Titus for all of us to understand. And so it's just the great truth of salvation that we get to know. And so, uh, let's see. Now you got me off track. Where am I at here? 
You guys did it. You guys did it. What's that? Yes, who is Titus? There we are. We're getting there. So Paul, Paul refers there to God, Jesus, and we know also the Spirit was in salvation. Now, let's keep going. Who was Titus? Thank you. Who was Titus? He was a Gentile by birth. Doesn't say that here. Galatians chapter 2 tells us that. He was converted to faith in Christ by the Apostle Paul himself. Verse five to, uh, verse 4, uh, to Titus, my own son, after the common faith. My own son after the common faith. Paul was his spiritual father. Paul was responsible for most likely leading Titus to Christ. Just like we saw last time, he was responsible for leading Onesimus to Christ and Philemon to Christ. And so Paul was a very um, active soul winner for Jesus Christ. And so he was converted by the Apostle Paul. Though Luke, by the way, doesn't mention... Titus in the book of Acts on Paul's three missionary journeys, he is mentioned in Titus is is mentioned um, in 2 Corinthians nine times. He's mentioned. And so Paul continually talks about Titus. And by the way, 2 Corinthians is Paul's most intimate letter. So in mentioning Titus in a favorable light nine times, Paul must have had a very intimate relationship with Titus. He greatly appreciated who Titus was. Titus was a strong encourager uh, to the Apostle Paul. And so we know that he accompanied also Paul to the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem when they had to decide if they were going to eat meat offered to idols and not drink blood and if Jews had to be, or non-Jews, Gentiles who got saved had to be um, circumcised. That was all determined in Acts 15 at the council. Titus was there with Paul when Paul was giving his report after the missionary journey about what was going on in his journeys to serve Christ. We know that um, Titus was a a great comforter uh, to Paul when Paul was deep in trial at Macedonia. Uh, that's northern Greece. Do I put that in your notes there? Nevertheless, God, that comforted those that are cast down, think about that for a second. God comforts us when we're cast down, when we allow Him, comforted us by the coming of Titus. God uses people class in our lives to help comfort us. Just a small note, do you receive the comfort from people? Do you allow your heart to have friends and, and spiritual leaders and people that you trust to be able to comfort you? Do you place a phone call? Do you send a text? Hey, could you pray for me? Hey, I'm, I'm just going through this time right now. You know, God has given us comforters to be able to help, and God wants us to be helpers ourselves when we get that call. Hey, I'm struggling. Hey, let me pray for you. And that really starts right here among us as a class, how we love and care and comfort one another. Titus would have been a good ABF, you know, servant because he came and he comforted Paul on numerous occasions. And that's what it says there. By the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he, Titus, was comforted in you. The Corinthians turned it back to Titus and they saw he saw how the Corinthians were living at that moment and was comforted by what? Titus was doing for the Apostle Paul when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me so that I rejoice the more. Titus told me of your heart for me, Corinthians, and I'm very grateful for that. So Titus was there with Paul. He was a, a promoter of Paul, if you will. And then um, uh, Paul then left Titus in Crete. 
to organize the new believers. Verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed you. And so Titus was with Paul. Paul had confidence in Titus. God says, Titus, I'd like to leave you in Crete because there's a lot of people there who are saved, but they're not meeting in churches, and there's no leader there to organize and feed the people. And so I need you there to be able to do that. Enter Titus now, the organizer, the overseer, the shepherd of the shepherds who would take over the pastorate there in Crete. So let's talk about that. What was Crete? Well, Crete was located in the Mediterranean Sea. I showed you one, one um, map of that. I'll show you that in just a second. It was southeast of Greece and north of, um, north of Africa. There's Crete right down here at the bottom. You see Asia Minor over here, Turkey, and then you see um, Greece here. And then over here is Italy, the Adriatic Sea that we know of today, the major Mediterranean Sea, and down here would be be uh, Africa, the continent of Africa. So Crete is right there, a long, narrow island. What was the shape of that? Well, I'll give you that in just a minute. But he was ordained to appoint leaders in this, on this island. And so the island, it was 160 miles long by 7 to 35 miles wide. It was a, a narrow, real narrow at places, but long. And so there was a lot of cities, a lot of towns there that had grown up. And so he, um, the gospel could have been started by the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost. This is where the saved people came from. You say, man, that's just an island out in the middle of the Mediterranean. How could that have gotten started? Well, if you read in Acts, you'll see that there were Jewish people come from Crete to Pentecost. And they were there to celebrate the Jewish festival, celebrate it. And then they took what they learned when Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit coming. They must have gotten saved there and they took it back. They heard the gospel in their own tongue and carried the message back to their land. And then over the years, more and more people were believing the gospel. So that the time Paul's coming along through his missionary journeys and coming back there saying, Wow, there's people here on Crete that are believers, but they're just not organized. We need to get it going. And so that's what was happening. And the churches in Crete, they were new. They were immature in their faith and probably small individually, but potentially uh, large overall. They were spread throughout you know, the land. And so that's what was going on. He said, I want you to ordain elders or pastors in this place. How do we know that they were immature and not really following, some of them not following the Lord, or the people as a whole were sort of rough characters. Well, look over at verse 10, talking about the people of Crete. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, uh, a Cretanite, a Cretan, right? Even a prophet of their own said... The Cretans are always, always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, hardly complimentary of the people of, of, uh, of, of that area, right? 
Okay, so they were immature in their faith. They needed instruction class. They needed direction and godly leadership. And so Paul writes of them in Titus these things. And so they were unruly. They were lawbreakers. They were boasters. They were exaggerators. They were all sorts of things. They were insincere fakers and deceivers, especially the Jews of the circumcision, those who should have known better. So there were many Jews that weren't saved there as well. And they were teaching false doctrines in order to get rich and make money off of the people and start false ministries. So much so that this, this, prof, this uh, poet, his name was Epimenides, admitted that the Cretans are a people that lie and they're evil, they're lazy. They're like wild animals, they're lazy bums and they're just no good. He said that about his own people. How would you like to be Titus going into that group of people? That's a tough crowd. I mean, I don't even have it that bad coming into this class. Imagine that. <laughs> just wait. Yeah, just wait. My time's coming. Yeah. That's where Titus was, was heading. And so what was Paul doing? We need to establish leaders to organize these group of wild people and get them saved coming to the church. So the churches were non-existent on the island, and they, again, needed to be organized and trained. So the leaders, do I have that there in your notes? The leaders... Their titles were elder. Elder was one. What is an elder class? Well, it emphasizes the age and the maturity of the leader. That's what an elder is. It's just a mature person, usually older in age and older in maturity. And a lot of churches call their pastors elders. In, in, in a Baptist church, we call, we're called pastors. But it's the same office. Um, but their age and their example is a, their age and maturity is an example to the younger, less experienced Christians. The second is bishop. Bishop, and the bishop means simply means an overseer. And that emphasizes the guidance and direction of God's people, what they do. They're overseers of the flock. And so an elder is also an overseer. An overseer would generally be an elder. And then pastor. That's what we call our leaders. A pastor simply means shepherd, right? It's a shepherd who leads the sheep and oversees the sheep, describes the caring for God's people as a shepherd cares for his sheep. And so Paul is saying, hey, go, go get those guys and appoint quality men to be able to serve in this capacity. And so the next part that Paul talks about here and what we're going to cover today, just the next three, four verses is the leadership qualities of godly leaders. Okay, so let me give you some of those. And by the way, let me just preface this by saying, though, though Paul is specifically talking to Titus about pastors and leaders in the church, and, and it's also talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's the qualities for pastors, is 1 Timothy 3 as well as Titus 1, both pastoral epistles. Paul is going to mention this, but it applies to all of us as followers of God. So man, though, you might not be a pastor. Could you say, hey, I could be qualified because of my godly heart, my godly spirit. Ladies, you could say, you know, as a godly woman, though I'm not a man, yet there's still godly characteristics here that I should be displaying as well as a female, but a, but a Christian who wants to love and serve Christ. And so here we go. In verse 6, he says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife. And so there you see it. The word blameless there is to have moral integrity and to live above reproach. 
Class, the pastorate is demanding. You know, I can speak from experience. It is demanding and requires diversity of roles and responsibilities. All sorts of things. I remember when I first started, I was coaching the basketball team. And so uh, in the morning, we did a funeral. And I had to lead a funeral. In the afternoon, I'm coaching the basketball team out on the field. Is that diverse or what? That's like, like as, as far apart as you can get. And, and it is. Uh, the ministry is, is like that at times, especially when there are smaller churches. The translator John Wycliffe wrote this, The highest service that men may attain to on earth is, a, is to preach the word of God. And so, um, it's, Paul says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused or nor unruly, it is a work of God. He desires a good work, he told Timothy over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so it is work. Paul mentioned in Colossians chapter 1, he said this, Whom we preach, warning every man, that's counseling, preaching, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to this working, which worketh in me mightily. It is a work. You know this, whenever you're having to deal with people, it's sometimes a challenge because we are all independent spirits. And so keeping unity is vital and, and what God has called us to. And thank you for your unity. Thank you for your love for us as pastors. Thank you for your faithfulness to God and to the church and for ministry here that you do. You help keep this going because the five of us just can't do it. And you all contribute to that and that is a great blessing uh, to all of us. But Stuart Briscoe said this, he once described that every pastor needs to, um, be, to be an effective shepherd. He said this, the heart, he needs to have the heart of a saint, he needs to have the mind of a scholar, and he needs to have the skin of a rhinoceros. <laughs> and so sometimes that is true. But he's supposed to be that blameless person. Now, none of us are perfect, and all of us pastors will admit that. And fellas, you as well, and ladies, none of us are perfect, right? But we should be striving to be more righteous every day and to live for God. He says, the husband of one wife, it means a one-woman man, never divorced or unfaithful in marriage or even flirtatious. So um, it's having a, a high moral standard, a high code of conduct. And so... You know, this qualification has been debated in many, many churches as to who, what type of pastor, what's it mean to be the husband of one wife? Well, we believe as Baptists and as Valley Forge Baptists that it's, it's talking about not being divorced. It's not talking about someone who's a widower and had one marriage, but that person died, and now because they had a marriage and the spouse died, they can't get remarried and be a pastor because they would have had two wives. That would violate Pastor Wendell then because his first wife died. We don't believe that's the case. It's not talking about polygamy, having multiple wives. We, we, wouldn't, we would never approve of that. It's just simply saying that you are the husband of one wife. You have one wife for life except in death. You're faithful to that one person. Let's take it so far as to say, what about a person before they're saved? was married, was divorced, got remarried as a saved person, and now becomes a pastor. Um, you know, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Churches debate that. 
And that is, a, that is not an easy one. Generally, our position here would be that to, to maintain the integrity of the office of pastor, they should never have been divorced if they're going to serve as pastor. If they're morally unfaithful, that would also then cause them not to be uh, qualified to return to the pastorate if they're there and they have a moral fall that would that would prevent them from remaining as pastor because of the blamelessness of the ministry. And so it's a it's a it's a narrow, it's a tight a position that we take. But but I think Paul in the description here is making it, you know, uh, a tight qualification. And so um, just wanted to throw that out to you. Number three um, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. That's a challenge also, isn't it? In this age in which we live, you know, oftentimes going back as a dad, how am I doing? How are we doing? Ann and I, how are we doing here? What's going on? How are our kids? Are they, are they following God? Are they walking with God? Are they being obedient to us? Now, all kids have their moments. But, but generally, they come through and it's like they are walking with the Lord and they have not been rebellious against parents. And so they're not accused of riot or unruly. Now that's a, pretty, that's a pretty strong rebellion, isn't it? So their faithful children are children who believe in Jesus Christ. They've come to the faith and they know Him as Savior. And the parents have led them in an environment where they can easily come to Christ. They're not guilty of rioting or being unruly. And so 1 Timothy 3 equates the qualifications of ruling his own house well with this qualification here in uh, Titus. So riot there in your notes is excess and out-of-control behavior. The pastor's kids aren't doing that. They're not unruly or disobedient or rebellious to authority. Generally, they're, they're in the realm of authority. You can trust that those kids are going to be, be obedient, though at any given time they could have their moments. It's not a, a, a life of that. Next, in your notes there, they're the blameless steward of God in verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. Um, what's he talking about there? Well, it's a steward's class is simply a manager. Did I put that there in your notes? A steward is a manager over the owner's affairs. And so if a man can't rule his own house, how can he be a good steward over someone else's affairs? And so 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards as a man who is simply uh, not the owner but the caretaker, or ladies, you as well, your caretakers over what God has given to you. It says it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful, trustworthy, and so on. And so God counts on His under-shepherds to be good stewards of their giftedness. What does that mean? Well, they're supposed to feed the flock and lead the flock and train the flock and, and counsel and discipline and teach and encourage the church members under their, under their you know, pastoring, their tutelage. And they are to faithfully represent the owner of the church, which is Jesus. We're representative of His. And so that's no small task, and we all take that seriously here. Next is not self-willed means not being dominant or aggressive or overbearing. They're gentle. They're reasonable. 
And they're not overly dominant and harsh in their personality. Not soon angry. In other words, they're not hot-tempered as a, as a person. Or have a short fuse and walk around just ready to explode on people. Um, Paul writes to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Did I put it there in your notes? The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, or perhaps, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And so that pastor is gently trying to lead the flock to a place of righteousness. So not soon angry. Not given to wine. That's an often debated one too, class. There's no doubt about that. There's lots of churches out there that would just give pastors the freedom to be able to, to, uh, to in, indulge in alcohol. Our position here again is we believe that it is best absolutely for pastors to abstain from all alcohol. Not to drink wine. We believe Jesus did not turn water into alcoholic wine. It was fresh grape juice. Wine, why? Because wine is a mocker, the Bible says. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Why would Jesus make something intoxicating that he condemned why would he make that a possibility for people? Why would pastors who are supposed to be shepherding the flock and, and above reproach possibly taking a substance that can intoxicate them to cloud his judgment or be a poor example to the flock? It's no sacrifice really for us to avoid that stuff. It's just happy to do it. Because wine is a mocker and we don't want to be there and we teach our children not to do that. And I want to encourage all of us here as church family that we abstain from alcohol because of the effects that it can have on your mind, on your, you know, the getting to that level of intoxication, the whole stigma of it that can hurt your testimony and on and on we could go. But for especially those of us in leadership, uh, we do not... We do not drink, and so uh, the pastors here don't imbibe, nor do the, the deacons. Question? Why would the uh, grape juice be called wine then? It's just juice. Okay, so it's the same word, oinas, in, in New Testament. So it could be, you have to look at the context of it. Wine could be in, intoxicating or non-intoxicating. Both, either way. So you have to look at the context to see which one it was, is, is the short answer to that. That's the belt. Okay, so not given to wine, so abstaining from alcohol. Letter H, not a striker, not quick-tempered. He's not quarrelsome or ready to fight with his tongue or his fists. I'm not a good fighter class. I've, 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 I've never been in a fight. I just want you to know that. So you could take me, I'm sure. <laughs> not a striker. He's mild-tempered, mild-mannered. Not given to filthy lucre, not having an unhealthy attraction for money. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's not evil to invest and to do things like that. But we don't let that consume us or control us. And I don't believe that's just for pastors. That's for all of us, right? Because we don't want to have our hearts given over to the lustful pleasures of the love of money. But we use money wisely and we be good stewards of that which God has given to us. Paul says that, and we find in whatever state we are in, therewith to be what class? Content. Right? We're to be content. He is a lover of hospitality. That means a person who loves strangers. He extends care. 
And we, every week, just had someone come in this past week who needed help. We put them up in a, in a, uh, in a hotel for a night. And we give them the gospel. We give gift cards and gas cards and food and help and pay a bill for lots and lots of people over the years because we want to be loving strangers and help them. A lover of good men, having a strong affection for those who are good and have upstanding characters. And thank you, men, for being that. I feel like all of you I can be great friends with. It's reciprocated that way, and that's what makes the body of Christ unified and one. And so, just for sake of time, we just, we've got to keep moving on here. L is sober, a good sense of discernment, and able to make wise decisions. Has sound judgment. Now, some of you might catch me on that one. I'm just going to try to keep moving right on from that. We're not going to spend too much time there, right? <laughs> no, sound judgment. Yes, we, we're able to make wise decisions because we seek the Lord and seek wise counsel outside of ourselves. He is just. It means he's going to live in a way that is proper, right, and fitting for the office. He's holy, righteous, with a genuine desire to be obedient to God's will and laws. He is temperate. That means self-controlled. He lives an exemplary life and walks in the integrity of his heart. And then finally, holding fast the faithful word, he will faithfully teach and preach the word of God. He's loyal to the scriptures. In classes, I mentioned to them from the outset, that is my passion. That is our passion with all of us as pastors. That is our heart. We will remain loyal to the scriptures as we remain loyal to you as people of God, as you walk with God. It is a privilege to be able to serve in this church and to serve you here in this church. Thank you for that privilege. I mean that from my heart. It's great to meet with you every week and keep coming. I know this is a long list of stuff, but apply your own self to this and say, you know, if could I be a pastor or a pastorette, right? <laughs> could I be that godly female leader because I have these qualifications as well? That's what God wants for all of us. The summary would be this. God does have a high standard for leaders over his people and he brings great condemnation for infidelity to the office. I've dealt with a couple dozen of pastors in the counseling center of pastors outside of here that have been unfaithful and they've had to step out of the ministry and it is always onerous. As the Lord brings pastors to your mind, an encouragement would be to write a note. Thank them, be faithful to the word, um, for loving the word, loving the flock and serving the Lord faithfully and for resisting temptation, for being faithful to their families, for being uncompromising examples to the church family, and for being sincere in their walk with God. If you see your pastors doing that, it's good to be able to recognize that in their lives. And that's not a self-promotion um, for me. That is just, that's good practice to do. Lots of stuff there to think about. Thanks for being in class today. We're going to continue on with Titus. And trust that you will walk with the Lord, serve the Lord this week. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for each one in this class. Help us, Lord, to apply these character qualities to our own lives that we might make a difference in other people's lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.